This is Fresh Air. I'm David Biancooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Lamont Dozier, part of the Motown songwriting team Holland Dozier Holland, died Monday at the age of 81. Along with brothers Brian and Eddie Holland, he helped define the Motown sound. They wrote many hit songs, mostly for Martha and the Vandellas, the Supremes, and the Four Tops. Here are just a few. Paul and 
Dozier and Holland wrote more than 80 singles that reached the top 40 in the pop or R&B charts, including 10 number one hits for the Supremes. The team was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1988 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. We're going to listen to Terry's 2003 interview with Lamont Dozier and Brian and Eddie Holland. They began with one of their hits for the Four Tops, which, by the way, became part of the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. that almost kind of like galloping horse drum beat <laughs> was was that the idea of one of you well it was a, a Lamont and I came over you know what I mean thought about that and um, uh, which makes it interesting uh, you know what I mean different sounds like that makes uh, in, uh, a record interesting especially on, in, on an intro mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the feeling of it you know uh, I think uh, there was a broken tambourine there was a tambourine without the uh, the little shakers on it and uh, we just thought that, well, the feeling of the music was, it almost dictated that we have some type of uh, feeling like that going through, that little galloping thing that you mentioned. And in this case, uh, we found this broken tambourine that seemed to, to match just what we needed uh, for that feeling, you know. Eddie Holland, you were the lyricist on this song. Um, how did you come up with the, the, the reach out, I'll be there hook? Uh, I'm not sure. I think that was Lamont had the idea. Often when Brian and Lamont would work together on the um, basic melodies in the in the earlier stages, sometimes, you know, one or two of us, you know, or three of us would come up with an idea and then they would give me, after they uh, recorded the, the uh, instrumentation in the studio, they would give me that um, tape of that and I would have to write the uh, lyric to it. Mm-hmm. Wait, so you wrote the lyric after it was partially produced? Well, yes. When you say, yeah, I guess you could consider it partially produced when the uh, the instrumentation was basically done, the rhythm of it. Then that's that's when uh, uh, Bryant uh, would, uh, because Bryant was the engineer also in many cases, he would give me a copy of it. Uh, I, sometimes, I, like I say, would have a title. Sometimes it wouldn't. In a, but the bottom line is that... Uh, I had to finish the lyric of it. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So the song already had a feel to it. It had a sound before there was a, a, a lyric. Oh, yes. Yeah. Most definitely. Because mm-hmm. we cut uh, tracks first, you know, uh, most of the time. It was done with tracks first, and then once we got the feeling and 
and we gave Eddie a, a, a melody to work from, so then he would know some uh, some idea about what it is that we were feeling, Brian and I, when we uh, when we sat down to uh, do these things. Uh, in this particular case, which I, I'll be there, uh, Brian came up with that initial da ba da da ba da ba da ba da da. And, and then, uh, then it went into the funk part, as mm-hmm. I call it, and then, uh, uh, and then that's when I joined in, and, and we did a lot of things like that in compiling the track. And then once the uh, uh, the, the track had been established, we would, uh, uh, you know, share our feelings about the melody, and then after the melody and the idea and whatever title we had, then we would pass it on to Eddie so he could uh, complete the lyrics. I just find that so interesting because for so many other songwriters, it's the melody and the lyric that come first, and th- then the production's conceptualized. Or you know, a funny you, thing, you're hearing we, all these we instrumental never knew hooks that. first. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one ever told us that. <laughs> no. so, so, so tell us a little more about about how you worked together as as a as a songwriting and production team. How you divided up the responsibilities and what the process was like. Well, uh, it started off, I guess, uh, with uh, uh, sitting at the piano. Uh, uh, this is Lamont. <laughs> started off at the piano uh, with uh, coming up with an idea first or a feeling of sorts. And then uh, once we established that, Brian and I would uh, work out a, 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 a track uh, that we wanted to cut or a feeling for a track, and we would go in and cut. Brian was the engineer. Uh, we we both would uh, put our uh, feelings about the track and the music that we wanted to inject in the track, and, and relay that to the musicians. Like, uh, say for instance, uh, I can't uh, help myself as a baseline. That dun 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 dun. Then I would pass that on to James Jamison, uh, while Brian was over telling Benny Benjamin what the feeling of the drum should be. This was the type of way we we uh, uh, we, we the workload, I, as I say, uh, should uh, that we distribute the workload, and then we pass that on to Eddie with any lyric or idea or title uh, for him to uh, complete the song. At what point would you know what group was going to sing the song? Well, this is Eddie Holland speaking. Well, pretty much we directed our attentions as a rule towards a specific group. For example, if we were working on the uh, Supremes, we would write specifically for the Supremes. If we were doing the Vandellas, we would write specifically for the Vandellas or the Four Tops or whatever. But Brian and Lamont were so very prolific in their coming up with melodies and ideas that very often they would do songs that didn't necessarily fit the particular artist's that we were working on, meaning that they would come up with three songs and maybe two of the three or one of the three did not fit that particular artist that we were uh, working towards, uh, uh, working you know, on to get the, the production. So that song then would be diverted to another artist. Can you think of so an example we, like that? <clears throat> Well, yes. I mean, in the process of coming up with uh, songs for uh, the Supremes, uh, there was a song called uh, This Old Heart of Mine that was later done on the Isley Brothers, and, you know, in the process of also working on, you know, the Supremes and or the Van, uh, Vandellas at that time. Mm-hmm. There was a song called Baby, I Need Your Lovin', 
which later on was given to the uh, four tops. So that that is the uh, examples of um, of uh, us working on a particular artist and then some of the songs being diverted to someone else. My guests are the songwriting team of Brian and Eddie Holland and Lamont Dozier. Here's their song, This Old Heart of Mine, as recorded by the Isley Brothers. the Isley Brothers. We'll continue with Terry's 2003 interview with Lamont Dozier and Brian and Eddie Holland after a break. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 2003 interview with the songwriting team of Holland Dozier Holland, brothers Brian and Eddie Holland and Lamont Dozier. They wrote dozens of top 40 hits for Motown recording artists, including 10 number one hits for the Supremes. Lamont Dozier died Monday at age 81. Let's hear another record. You did a lot of work with the Supremes. Some of the Supremes' hits that you wrote and produced include Where Did Our Love Go, Baby Love, Come See About Me, Stop in the Name of Love, I Hear a Symphony, My World is Empty Without You, Love is Like an Itching in My Heart, Can't Hurry Love, You Keep Me Hanging On, etc., etc. So um, why don't we hear You Can't Hurry Love? Um, tell us about putting, like, creating the song and creating the record, and then we'll hear it. Uh, Brian came up with that. I remember. I correct. Yeah, it was like a gospel thing. I guess you can't a nice little bounce, and uh, um, uh, he came up with that idea and that feeling uh, that just at the time the the Supremes were riding high and feeling uh, their oats as superstars and what have you, and so it was like uh, the next. You you might say the next. Uh, uh, process in the scheme of thing, meaning that uh, it was a hit song that a lot of artists couldn't have done, you know. Uh, uh, but because of their popularity, we could get away with something like that with them, you know. So uh, again, we cut the track and and passed that on to Eddie. I think that was I don't know Eddie. He had to come up with a, a title for that. Cause yeah, really, yeah, I came up with the title for that. I yeah. was influenced by uh, Lamont hit it right on the head. By the way, this is Eddie. I was influenced by, um, I guess it's safe to say now, how many years has it been? The gospel, of the gospel songs. That's what influenced me. But to make it even clearer, what, it, what influenced me to be influenced by the gospel song was the melody mm. and the beat of the, uh, the, the, the song itself, the syncopated movement of the melody. 
influenced me to think of that old gospel song, uh, you know, which I won't really say what it is, but all you gospel people out there, you know what it is. Oh, what is it? Come on. I'm not going to say it. Oh, say it. Say it. Nah, I'm not going to say it. But uh, they'll, they'll know. You know who you are. You, you know. <laughs> but uh, but through the lyric, even in there, you could you could tell, you know, it's, it's, it was influenced. But see, because we grew up, Brian and I, I can't really speak for Lamont on that because I'm not sure. Uh, we never talked too much about that, but Brian and I, you know, we grew up in the church at a very, very young age. Matter of first, matter of fact, the first uh, uh, hearing of Sunday school, a school period, I thought it was Sunday school. You know, that's the first school I knew was Sunday school that I could retain. You know, that's the truth. So we grew up in the, you know, in a Baptist church, you know, Davidson Avenue Baptist Church in uh, De- Detroit, Michigan, there on uh, Saint Auburn. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the songs, you know, I was influenced by uh, what influenced me in the church. I think that was why we got along so well, because we had the same sort of same musical upbringing, mm-hmm. uh, classical music mixed with gospel music. And in my particular case, I couldn't get out the house unless I go to choir rehearsal with it. <laughs> you too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we finally found out. Huh? Yeah. You know, and uh, that was a must, you know, in, in the black home uh, in those days. My grandmother was a, a choir instructor, and uh, I had to be there for choir uh, uh, rehearsals on Thursdays and then all day Sunday, and maybe sometimes on Saturdays, you know, with this choir business. Uh, from the time I was 12 years old, learning about uh, uh, harmonies and, and, and singing in the choir and things like that. So I learned quite a bit, and I think we all did, uh, because it was like the backbone of uh, most uh, black singers today, from Aretha Franklin, who who is a good friend of ours that uh, that we knew back there, and and a lot of other uh, other people uh, that uh, were, that we knew at Motown exactly that grew up in church. Marvin Gaye was another church boy, you know, uh, and uh, most of our training uh, came from church. So uh, when you say uh, songwriting is done this way or that way, we just shot from the hip. Whatever felt good, mm-hmm. that's what we did. Well, let's hear one of your many records that turned out great. This is The Supremes, You Can't Hurry Love.
mesh with the Supremes? How did the Supremes become one of your groups? Uh, I don't know. I guess it, they became one of the groups uh, when we had the best song <laughs> of <laughs> of, uh, of the rest of the producers, meaning that, uh, 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 case in point, uh, there were... Uh, oh, oh, yeah, this is Lamont speaking, right? <laughs> uh, uh, case in point, the uh, uh, I think we we first started recording them uh, of any consequence. We had a, a big hit uh, or a top ten, top twenty hit when the love light starts shining in his eyes, which did okay. But uh, they became our group, so to speak, uh, 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 when we came up with "Where Did Our Love Go?" and "Where Did Our Love Go" was something that. Uh, this uh, by accident happened uh, uh, that could have been just as well for the the Marvelettes or uh, people like that. But uh, because it it was a big hit on the Supremes, in this particular case, uh, the song was so big that Barry came in and said, hey, we got to follow this up. And that's when we started doing more baby stuff, baby love, <laughs> baby this, baby that. But only thing about it, with Lamont, I talked to Barry Gordy on uh, one night on the porch of uh, Motown, and he said, listen, he said, I talked to Barney. Barney said, uh, uh, Barney Ailis, he's the, the guy, you know, was heading of sales at that time and in, in handling distributors. He said, the record is a smash, it's a big record. And uh, he says we need to hurry up uh, and do and do more on on the Supremes, and, and because Motown needs to go all out on making the Supremes a big group, he said because they they have big crossover potential. And so when I heard that, I went back and told Brian Lamont. I said, listen, we have to move on this group because the company has the intent of being very strongly behind this group. And so what we have to do is come up with some other songs on 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 the group be, be, because you know it's is a very competitive company here. And so we did that. And I don't know whether they remember once I came in there and I told I told them that nobody was leaving out of here. I don't know if they remember that. No. I closed the office door and they said they're going, they were leaving. I said, No nah, man, nobody's leaving out of this office. We coming up with some songs. Lamont looked at me, Brian looked. And then so the fact of the matter is the next three uh number one or top ten or whatever the songs that I don't recall now was done that day. That's right. And Brian and I got into an argument, what should be the next follow-up or what should be this follow-up. That's the only argument. All three of those songs were done that day on the next session. Which mm-hmm. songs were they? Baby Love and uh, Come See About Me. Right. And it was, an- it was another one, it's too. It was another one, too, right. Yeah. yeah. Baby love, come see about me, and then got him back in my arms. It was, it was something else that was hit, but whatever. Maybe it was just the two. I thought it was three, but it was those two songs was done on the same session. And yeah, they, when they were, was recorded that day, and then like I said, Brian and I got into an argument. He and I argued a lot. Lamont sort of looked and eased his way out. I don't know. He never. He, he, he was always very smart not to get involved. <laughs> two he brothers said, Let argue, brothers fight two it out. Bargains, argue it out. You know, he just said, "Hey, whoever wins, I'm on your side." <laughs> you know, he's a real politician. You know what I mean? That was the position oh. he, that he took. Well, but anyway, well, well, why don't we hear the song that that kicked all of that off, and hear the Supremes doing? Where did our love go? Written and produced by my guests, the team of Holland, Dozier, and Holland. Baby, 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 don't leave me 
so many of your hit songs have catchphrase titles like You Can't Hurry Love or Reach Out, I'll Be There, um, Sugar Pie Honey Bun, Nothing But Heartaches, You Keep Me Hanging On. Um, Eddie, you wrote a lot of the lyrics. Um, is there a reason why those phrases would come to you as song titles? Well, <clears throat> no. That sugar pie honey bunch thing was Lamont. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I got it from my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he used to call that. That's for uh, sure. Yeah, I, uh, he got that from, uh, uh, you know, in the South. Uh, they had those catch uh, catchphrases, uh, being that my grandfather was from the South. He used to come, and we had a, my grandmother had a home shop, uh, a beauty shop, and all the women used to come into the shop, and he'd be working in the front guard, uh, garden, and he sort of would be flirting with them, and he was like, how you doing, Miss, Miss, Miss Carrie? Sugar pie, honey bunch, you know, <laughs> flirting with them. And, and, and my grandmother used to be watching from the door, said, look, look at that old cottage out there. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, uh, uh, a lot of the things like that uh, uh, came back to uh, when it came time for me to use some of those catchphrases. Mm -hmm. uh, they came back uh, just when we needed something to say and uh, to fit a certain track or whatever. In this mm -hmm. case, that's what it was. Yeah, but mostly I would use titles. This is Eddie speaking again. That uh, you know that had some meaning. You know, I would try to do something titled use titles that I felt had appeal uh, from an emotional point of view and uh, a lot of the titles were things that uh, was said to me that I had direct uh, personal experiences in dealing with you know uh, you know I was a young man and uh, <laughs> a little sweetheart or two <laughs> <laughs> you know so, so a lot of the uh, yeah so a lot of the titles would be actually titles that females or ladies you know I would say nice ladies would, would, would say would say to me sometimes out of anger sometimes out of whatever you know so a lot of that but I could you could hear something that had feeling you could hear something that had meaning and I basically believed in using titles and ideas that had feeling or appealed to them wait so did you have a girlfriend who said you don't really love me you just keep me hanging on well I had a lot of them this time, <laughs> to say the least but but uh, yeah yeah that that was an argument that I had you know um with, with someone that they said that to me, yes. And you were yes. taking notes. <laughs> well, you know what? When you're a creative person, you don't necessarily, it just sticks to you. You, you went, As soon as you hear it, it catches you right away. And for some reason, all your instincts, you know, you could be in the middle of an argument or, you know, I've oh, been yeah. on telephones and talking to females in different conversations, you know. Uh, and uh, sometimes they would say certain things. I say, "Well, hold on for a minute," and I would go get me a pencil <laughs> and I would write it down. You know, because it's just being a creative person, especially knowing that your responsibility is a uh, is doing the lyric, <laughs> and you doing the lyric with two two very very prolific. You know, meaning Brian Lamont, very very prolific songwriters. You have to constantly, you have to think it and feel it and live it all the time. You know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, it's it's just a, it's a natural thing. I think all songwriters are like that, or yeah. poets are like that. You know, they hear something, they jot it down. Either if they don't jot it down, then they take uh, 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 mental notes, 
and it sticks. You know, I've had titles in my head uh, that I've had for 25 years. I have titles in my head now that I've had for 25 years that it's just ideas and thoughts, you know, that's, it, it just stick. It just stand out, you know. That's the four tops. More with Lamont Dozier and Brian and Eddie Holland after a break. They spoke to Terry Gross in 2003. This is Fresh Air. Brian Holland, you were vice president for quality control at Motown. What what did that mean? Uh, that meant that I would uh, take the records. I mean, the records that are being mixed, I would take them and listen to them and see did it have the quality to go out on the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if it was not the quality I thought it should be, or I thought Barry Gordy would want, then I would reject it and have it redone again. Uh, not the greatest way of making friends. <laughs> did you get well, into a no, lot but, of fights? But with? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I, remember, I remember specifically... Uh, I got in a, not a fight, you know what I mean, we got a disagreement with a couple of producers because I, you know, I turned down whatever thing they thought was hits and uh, and said, no, it wasn't good enough to go out. Did you have other ways of testing it? You know, were there meetings in which you played it for everybody else at Motown or were there dances that you could test a record before mm-hmm. it was released commercially to see if it was infectious well, or not? Yeah, well, this is Brian again, as, as you know. Uh, what had happened is that we had uh, what they call a con- quality control meeting, and to listen to all the records that were scheduled to go out, and and we would vote on them. We have a, about maybe eight to ten people that would actually vote on a record, and uh, if they say yeah, yeah, uh, the, the the majority say yeah, then it goes out. And personally, uh, personally, I always this is Eddie. Personally, I always thought it was more of a popularity contest more than anything, <laughs> because uh, nobody was going to say no on Smokey's Robinson songs for the most part, or you know, or Barry Cordy's either. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I, I remember too. Every once in this Lamont, uh, every once in a while, uh, we had uh, some kids come in in the in the big studio. Well, big studio it wasn't a big studio, but, <laughs> but in the main studio that we recorded, and we would, we would have uh, chips, Coke and chips, Coca Cola that is, uh-huh. and chips, and 
and they had uh, and had the the kids come in. It, I remember one summer we did that. We had a, we had an onslaught of songs, and uh, I think Mickey Stevenson uh, had uh, sort of got some kids together off the street or whatever, and, and brought them into the studio. And we had a little uh, uh, part, a reviewing party, a song party, whatever you want to call it, a listening party. Uh, and they played these songs, and a lot of the kids would would express their opinion on what they felt. They danced to the songs and and gave opinions on them, made little cards and and jotted down what they liked. Uh, did did you ever disagree with them and think, oh, what do you know anyways? You're just a kid. I'm a professional well, songwriter and I know <laughs> well, better. Well, this is this is Brian speaking. We did that. He's right. He we did that on several occasions, but it proved not to be good. Okay. Um, uh, for one, Smokey Robinson. He and Barry used to get into it all the time by his records, and he would demand that Barry bring in a whole bunch of uh, people—I mean, kids—and <laughs> to test his records out. And uh, and and the kids, I mean, Smoker was so popular that they said, "Yeah," and they put the record out and they flopped. <laughs> uh, he didn't have a good. <laughs> that proved not to be a good choice. The older people, uh, the more uh, I would say the. 25 to 30 to 40 people we had in the quality control meetings proved to be the most accurate mm-hmm. of, uh, of releasing records. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they were both reliable because uh, they they got into the song, got into the feeling of, of the, the situation and the lyric right. and uh, and just the overall production. Then then uh, then there were times when Barry would just override everything. When everybody said, no, it was a flop or whatever they thought. And he would say, well, I'm putting this out anyway, or I'm not putting it out. Now, he would override the whole situation at time. Well, we have time just to end with one more recording. And I thought we'd play the Martha and the Vandellas hit Heat Wave, which you wrote and produced. Um, Brian, is there a story behind the song? Well... It was a successful song. Uh, that's the main story, but uh, uh, not much of a story other than um, uh, we had fun doing that song, and and it took a lot of editing work I had to do on that song. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. A lot of tape on the floor. What kind I of probably, editing? Well, I had to. Well, you know. Well, you know, just like when you you're gonna edit this tape, I guess, or, or some maybe to some degree. But you had to take out little parts that you didn't need. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And to make it make the song whole. Yeah. Okay. To keep the uh, intensity, uh, the, the energy, right? The energy. Intensity, right? Yeah. Going. Yeah, right. right. You have to do that sometimes. Sometimes a lot of lull in the song. You know, right. Meaning that it uh, a lot of wasted air, uh, time, or maybe, and then you only had in those days like two minutes or two and a half minutes long. In those days, so you had to make sure that you hit all the hot spots and uh, keep the energy up. It was a very high energy song. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah. It was that absolutely, okay. and a big hit for them. Mm-hmm. Right, and for us too. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Congratulations on your BMI award. Thank you so much for talking thank with you. us. It was really fun, and thanks for all the great music you've given us. Thank, thank you. you, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
Martha and the Vandellas. Brian and Eddie Holland and Lamont Dozier spoke to Terry Gross in 2003. The songwriting trio wrote dozens of top 40 hits for Motown recording artists, including 10 number one hits for the Supremes. Lamont Dozier died Monday at age 81. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews the new British romantic drama, Ali and Ava, now in theaters. This is Fresh Air. The British romantic drama Ally and Ava is a story about an interracial relationship between two middle-aged North Englanders. Nominated for two British Academy Film Awards earlier this year, the movie is now playing in theaters and will be available August 23rd on Amazon Prime Video and Apple TV. Our film critic, Justin Chang, recommends it. Here is his review. Ali and Ava is a lovely, charming surprise. It's the latest drama written and directed by Clio Barnard, who's received much international acclaim for her powerful, often shatteringly bleak films set in Yorkshire in northern England. These earlier works, they include The Arbor, a boldly experimental portrait of the late playwright Andrea Dunbar, and The Selfish Giant, a tale of childhood friendship, are all tragedies of a kind, marked by poverty, bigotry, addiction, and abuse. Some of those elements appear in Ali and Ava, which takes place in Bradford, a city in West Yorkshire, and follows two people who've seen their share of hardships. Ali, played by Adil Akhtar, is a Pakistani immigrant who experiences plenty of day-to-day racism, often from white children who like to throw rocks at his car. Ava, played by Claire Rushbrook, is an Irish-born woman with four children and several grandchildren, plus a history of physical and emotional abuse by her recently deceased husband. But despite all this, the vibe of the movie is sunny and upbeat. And I do mean upbeat. The first time we meet Ali, he's standing on top of his car, dancing and listening to high-energy music on his headphones. Music is a huge part of his life. He's a DJ in his spare time, though he earns his living as a landlord. He's beloved by his tenants, many of whom are also immigrants, and treat him like family. Each day he drives one tenant's young daughter, Sophia, to school, which is how he crosses paths with Ava, who works as an assistant in Sophia's classroom. Their first meeting, it's a rainy day, and Ali offers Ava a ride home, isn't exactly love at first sight. But they're both so warm, friendly, and open to new experiences that it's no surprise when romantic sparks eventually start to fly. Soon they're visiting each other's homes and listening to each other's music. Ava loves folk and country, but Ali tries to turn her on to rap and electronica. In this amusing scene, Ali knocks on Ava's door one evening. She refuses to let him in at first, as she's just gotten out of a bath. And so Ali talks to her while peeking through the mail slot. Do you know what? That's it. That's it. Now I'm going. I've, I've had enough. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. That's it. See ya. I can, I can still see you. Where? There. Where? Don't jab at me. Oh, bloody hell. I see what you mean. You do look a mess, don't you? <sighs> just got a bath. Who is it still on? Well, no, you're not getting no, a bath. No, of course not. No. <laughs> there are complications. Ali is married though he and his wife are about to separate. She's looking to move out soon, but Ali still holds out hope for a reconciliation. He's also embarrassed about breaking the news to his tradition-minded relatives 
who live close by. Ava is constantly surrounded by her family as well. Her children are always dropping in on her, usually so she can babysit her grandkids. Despite their obvious cultural differences, both Ollie and Ava are the emotional glue holding their families together. Still, those differences do have a way of flaring into the open, mainly when Ava's racist son, Callum, played by Sean Thomas, catches the two of them hanging out and listening to music, and chases Ollie away with a sword. There's a lot of small-minded prejudice for Ollie and Ava to deal with. Both have busy, messy lives, something Barnard suggests with restless handheld camera work and convulsive editing. What makes the movie so affecting is the sense that, despite all this imperfection, Ollie and Ava have somehow found each other at an improbably perfect moment. The two leads are superb. Akhtar plays Ali like something of an overgrown child. He's a lot to take, but he has an irresistibly shaggy charm. And Rushbrook is simply stellar. As the selfless, good-natured Ava, she often flashes a smile you could warm your hands over, though she also shows you the piercing loneliness behind that smile. While there are tender scenes of connection in Ali and Ava, especially when the two enjoy a quick getaway by train, there are few grandly romantic speeches or gestures. Barnard maintains her tough, realistic approach, even as she guides this love story to its hopeful conclusion. Movies so rarely show us something as wonderfully, believably ordinary as Ollie and Ava's love, which is precisely why it feels so extraordinary. Justin Chang reviewed Allie and Ava, now playing in theaters. On Monday's show, Robin Thede, the creator and a star of the HBO series A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is now up for five Emmys, including Outstanding Variety Sketch Series. Thede was the first black woman head writer for a late-night TV talk show on The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, and hosted her own late-night show on BET called The Rundown. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sharrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Bricker, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley. Cooley.